Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to my podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps, episode 12, the fourth episode of season two, talking about Molly and Gracie, Molly's death. The name of this episode will be Death Week. Since Molly's death, May 1st through the 7th, the first week of the month in that first year of any month, we called it Death Week. And there are those listening that will find that to be very, very morbid. But one of the hardest things for us as a family to deal with was any sort of downplaying of our grief. Molly's death was like a train wreck out of nowhere. I hit a deer once and I I remember in the car driving along and suddenly I I had hit the deer and it had hobbled away before I even knew I was going to hit the deer. It happened so fast it was over before I knew it. And that was what the news of Molly's death was like. And then every step for the seven days following until we made a decision to take her off life support. And so death week was a monthly occurrence for us for the first year of after Molly died. And it was, it was rough. We don't do that now. You know, five and a half years have gone by. And, and like any journey, you know, the scenery changes as you trudge along or skip along, whatever the day may bring. And I remember actually the first month, I think it was like nine or 10 months, I think we're into 2017, when we got two or three days into the month and we realized that we had forgotten to notice that it was death week. Like anyone that's lost a child or a child that's lost a parent or someone that's lost somebody unbelievably close, the first time you realize you've forgotten something that connects you to them or their death, you feel incredibly guilty. And we felt awful, like, what are we forgetting about her? Well, no, but we're learning to accept the fact that she's no longer here. And that's a really, really muddled thing to get through in grief. So looking at that aspect of her death, that's where we sort of are in this season's journey. So I've discussed what it was like, the generalities of losing Molly, I realized that I couldn't talk about losing Molly without talking about having lost baby Gordy. And I couldn't illustrate the depth of the loss of Molly for Gracie without talking about Molly and Gracie and Gracie and Molly and how they work together. This episode will be very specific in a vague, vague way. Legal issues prevent me from getting too specific or opinionated publicly about anything that's happened with Molly regarding her medical treatment and care. So I will share with you what happened and I will do my best to leave my emotions out of it. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. I'll focus specifically here on the medical specifics of the last really two months and three days of Molly's life. Leading up to, there were many things leading up to the actual headaches that that were indicative of a brain tumor in her head, but I've discussed that a little bit and I really want to focus on the, the last two months of her life and what that was like for us. So As I have said before, our first actual doctor's appointment for Molly was February 28th, and I had been in Boston at the Crash Bees, which is an indoor rowing competition. And I'm sorry if I'm repetitive and I've shared this in another podcast, but it clarifies my head in telling this story (laughs) to maybe say it again. So I was at Boston University, which is where I went to college in there, a beautiful new building that didn't exist while I was there. And I was doing the Crash Bees, which is a rowing, indoor rowing 
championship. You row 2000 meters and you submit your time and it compared worldwide. It was actually a lot of fun. And I had gotten a rower for myself that Christmas and, and had been doing a ton of rowing. And it was something I was really enjoying. Kenny and I, as I said before, were separated at this time. We had just furnished an apartment and we're living back and forth. And we were trying to put together days that we could get along with one another so that we could be better parents and really look at our situation and how best to raise our family and be good to one another. And so a day in Boston seemed like a good way to do that. So we went down and I was finished and we were getting ready to leave and we were going to go have lunch at Faneuil Hall and walk around. It was kind of a nice day for February. And the phone rang and it was Gracie and she was in a panic that every time Molly stood up, she had to grab her head and it was this sharp, sharp pain and it made her fall down and it took her a few minutes and she had to stand up slowly. And, you know, that didn't seem right to me. And, and I couldn't recall a migraine ever doing that to me. So we drove home immediately. And I remember calling the pediatrician's office to see how long they'd be open and explain what was going on and how anxious I was and that we were driving home from Boston. And I recall the pediatrician being a bit impatient with me saying, well, you know, we close at 12, how, how, how soon can you get here? And, you know, really driving 80 miles an hour to get home. So we got home, Kenny jumped out of the car, Molly jumped in the car, and off we went to the doctor's office. And at that appointment, some of it went as I thought it might, and some of it troubles me still. But essentially, it was our first visit for this specific behavior or a symptom. Molly explained it. I explained how I felt about it and that she'd been having some headaches, that migraines ran in our family. She asked Molly a lot of questions about, you know, stress in her life and do people believe her? And she asked me, did Molly exaggerate? All of this was sort of right in front of Molly. And, and I remember feeling a bit unsettled by this, but, and I was impatient, you know, I just, I wanted to know what it was. And so in the conversation, I said, look, I'm not one of those mothers that thinks every headache is a brain tumor, but something isn't right. Can we just x-ray her head? I understand a CAT scan's pretty big for a first you know, appointment. Can we x-ray her head? Would an x-ray show us if something were there? And she replied, yes, an x-ray would show if something were there, but no, we're not going to x-ray her head. You know, and I just, you know, you look at a broken hand and they x-ray that right away and there's nothing life-threatening about a broken hand. You can't see inside a head. You can't palpate a head. You can't squish a head to see if there's a lump in it. And I remember leaving that day with, you know, if it, if it continues, come back. If it gets worse, come back, you know, that kind of advice. And, and I said to Molly, I'm sorry, that it doesn't seem like that went very well. And she said, that's okay, mommy, at least you believe me. And, I, and I'll never forget it. We were right out in front of our doctor's office, heading out of the parking lot there. I remember it so clearly. And that was that. So that was February 28th, which was a Sunday. And then school started up the next day, back to school not knowing that would be the last time Molly would go back to school after a week off. And she got busy. March came and, and she got busy with her play. She was in Bye Bye Birdie and there were rehearsals. Dance competition season was, was winding up to an end. And so there were two or three competitions that month. She was as busy as busy could be. And rightfully thinking, if she were in that much pain, she couldn't have done what she did. I mean, you can't fake a lot of the symptoms of a brain tumor. What I noticed is that she started sleeping in, not wanting to get up right away. I just don't feel good, mom. Can I sleep a little bit more? She went to school late two or three times. This is a girl that was vigilant about, you know, she might run late because she doesn't get ready quickly enough, but she never wanted to be late for school. She didn't want parties. She didn't like that. But I dropped her off late two or three times in the month of March and the beginning of April. One day, I remember I was going out the door and she goes, hey, mom, that thing happened in my head again. And I said, all right, I'm going to call the doctor right now. And Molly's reply was, well, no, it wasn't as bad as last time. And she said only if it got worse. So maybe it's getting better. So how much do I beat myself up for not calling the doctor and making that appointment anyway? A lot, a lot. I, you know, I can't, I can't go back and call now. And maybe it wouldn't have made a difference based on some of the other ones. So 
we made it through the rest of March and the beginning of April with no doctor visits and no significant complaints from Molly, other than her weirdness waking up. And a, and a massive symptom of a problem with cranial pressure is when you go from lying down to sitting up, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, that sort of thing. And it would take Molly an increasingly long time most mornings to be able to wake up and just sit up out, just sit up out of bed. She started waking up and going really slowly on purpose. And again, my mind went to migraine headaches and how debilitating they can be. And I, you know, mine used to come in clusters. And so I thought perhaps she was just, you know, experiencing these migraines. So one day, mid-April, she also started throwing up and, and she, it didn't always happen right away when she was waking up. She'd wake up, she'd have a headache. Oh, I feel sick. And she'd go throw up and then she'd feel better. And for any of you that have had classic migraines, which have the squiggly visions and can have vomiting, they come on and leave instantly. Sometimes you'll have the, the migraine hangover that thought that dull headache for a few days, but actual migraine, sharp pain in the vision disturbances and the nausea end as quickly as it begins. And so I was able to just tell myself that's what it was. And she was not, you know, not missing a ton of school, missing some. So one day she woke up and she ran into the bathroom and she was vomiting and vomiting. And I have a picture of her on the bathroom floor. Actually, it's horrifying now. She's lying there. So I was teaching at a school called 33, a private school. And so I, I went to school. I left, left, Kenny had dialysis. I felt like I couldn't call in sick. So I went and met the students, the, these two students and came back and I had a big dirt pile in my yard. We had had our our yard, our driveway repaved. And I got out some trucks and put these two boys in the sand pile. And I said, look, I need you to behave as well as you can. My daughter is sick. And so I went upstairs and there she was lying on the floor. And I looked out the window and check on the boys and check on Molly. And I called and made an appointment and they couldn't see her until two o'clock that afternoon. And so I'm like, okay, well, she's lying on the floor and she's vomiting and she can't get up. Hopefully I can get her there. I'm just concerned. And then poof, it was gone. She sat up. I think I feel better now, mom. Wow. So I took the boys and went back to school and Kenny got home from dialysis at about noon. And I really wanted to take Molly to the doctor that day, but I had already interfered with the school day. And one of my supervisors at my job indicated that I should stay at school. And, you know, Kenny was home. Why can't he take her? And so I called Kenny and said, would you please take Molly to the doctor? Another decision I'll regret until the day I die. Not that Kenny did a bad job at the doctor, but I'm just much more, I can be much more aggressive. And I'm not, I'm not sure how it might've gone had it been me instead of him. So they came home. My mother was over. We were putzing around in the kitchen. And Molly was devastated. She was devastated because the doctor insisted that her headaches and vomiting were because she was anorexic and that maybe she was vomiting on purpose. You know, and had, had I heard those words as a mother and as a coach of true anorexics who, who looked for these things in my child, I would have gone nuts in that doctor's office. That, that would have been a very big trigger for me, but I wasn't there to be triggered by it. So Kenny had taken great uh, Molly to the grocery store and gotten nuts. And I had protein powder and he taught her how to make shakes and cook eggs. And she started eating all of these foods that would help her gain weight. If she was too thin, she'd show that doctor she's not, doesn't have an eating disorder. And she did. She ate and ate and ate and she was fine. As it was typical, it was every week or so, these symptoms would rear its head and come back. That was the last week of, that was the second to last week of school. No, that was the last week of school. Vacation started that Friday. So that was, that was like the third weekend in April. So we've gone almost two months now with managing our symptoms on our own without doctor intervention. And so that was also the week, my week, that week, which I'll get into in another podcast, was totally taken up with stresses at my job and some pretty intense interactions with my supervisor. Do I go to Amsterdam with Roy or not? I made and took back that decision several times. I'm going, I'm not going, I'm going, I'm not going. And then now Molly's, Molly's headache. Gracie's birthday was coming up. If I left, I would be missing her birthday. I had missed her birthday in 2015 because I went to Hawaii to a wedding. 
So, you know, all of this was also swirling around my head. And one more self-hatred on my part is that I was so preoccupied with trivial things that maybe I missed something. What did I miss? What did I miss? So the last time that that I was really with Molly was that was, you know, Friday night and Saturday morning, the 22nd, 23rd of April. They had dance pictures and such. I went and picked them up, got them home from dance pictures, said hello to the photographer, Mr. Shetler. (laughs) Dick Shetler and his wife, Sharon, are the nicest people. And they've been, you know, photographers forever at Conquer Dance Academy. We hung up their costumes on the front stairs railing where Molly's remains today, I've said, with the, okay, we'll have to, let's clean these and organize these afterwards for recital and all the things coming up that would be coming up in in May and June at CDA. And then I was doing 100 burpees a day. And so we went outside and I did my 100 burpees outside. I remember a couple of people stopped by to visit and it really irritated Molly and Gracie. They just wanted time with me. You know, I was leaving and they were frustrated. Kenny was not home. I believe he was at the apartment. So this is how, this is how our day went. So Saturday morning comes, Kenny's at dialysis. So it's just me and the girls. I finished packing. Roy is driving up to get me. My car was in good condition, a drivable car. The other car was a Jeep and it really was not great condition. So for Kenny to be home the whole week with the crappy Jeep made no sense. In order to make sense to me to, for me to drive it. I don't, I don't remember the details, but I do know that I ended up, I tried to get, just get a ride to Boston later in the day where I could have just met Roy at the airport in the afternoon, get the flights. But Roy was coming down from Marblehead. So it didn't make sense for him to come all the way to Concord to me to go all the way back to Marblehead to go back to Boston. So he came pretty early, like, like 11 in the morning to get me. And so one of my most poignant memories with Gracie and Molly was saying goodbye to them. They were both very upset that I was leaving. They didn't understand. And Kenny, of course, was out of his mind upset. And that didn't help them. They were very, very perceptive. And if we did anything wrong in that piece is we, we didn't balance the being honest with the girls with keeping them from things from the girls. And so it was all just very tricky and uncomfortable and ugly. So I was hugging them. We're up in their bedroom and I was snuggled and hugged them like I do when it's bedtime. Hugs and kisses, hugs and kisses. And Molly away. No, I'm not going to hug you goodbye. I don't want you to go. And I sat with her and I said, you know, Molly, Nanny always told me that you, the last thing you say to somebody whenever you go anywhere is I love you. And I'll see you like with my mother. It was always, I'll see you at three when I get come home from school. I remember having a big fight with my mother once and walking, I was late for school because I came all the way home to say, I love you, mommy. I'll see you at three. And so I said, I shared that with Molly at that time. And so she hugged me and hugged me tight and said that she loved me. And she hoped that I had fun and that she actually knew I was going because she saw my passport application paperwork in the car one day. And, you know, she just hadn't talked to me about it. You know, I think, I think Molly was so inquisitive, so insightful. She just knew things. She just figured things out. And she was intellectually far ahead of herself, maturity wise. And so I think things freaked her out. I don't think she knew what to do with this whole situation. So Roy arrived, I get in the car and I leave. And I met my last interaction with Molly. Gracie was upstairs crying and Molly walked me to the door and she said, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And, you know, the girls had had a long, had known Roy for a long time since they were little. So he wasn't this unknown entity, but it was a confusing entity and a confusing time. And it was a big piece of the story at the time and how I dealt with my grief afterwards. So I leave. So begins my vacation to Amsterdam. We went shopping ahead of time. We went to the airport. We had some wine and cheese. We got on the plane and off we went. On the plane, sitting right next to me on my left, where I was on my right, was a resident of Concord whose name forever escapes me. And he'll come by every once in a while and say hi and, and check in with us and all. And so we talked and talked about Amsterdam. He, he's a frequent traveler there. I don't remember why. I mean, he was going to be spending a month there. We were just there for a week. So, so began my vacation. And 
it was, you know, Amsterdam is an amazing city, the World War II history, the architecture, the tulips, you know, the windmills. There's so much to the Netherlands that's phenomenally beautiful. And I forever will have a very, very difficult relationship with that country based on circumstances around my visit there and how things are still today around Roy and all of that. So as I've said before, I enjoyed the vacation. I was constantly thinking of Molly and Gracie and Snapchatting them. Not Well, they asked if they could get Snapchat and we texted back and forth a few times. Gracie was much more forthcoming. I sent pictures. I didn't always get responses from Molly. She did respond when I asked her how she was. Please let me know you're okay that day that she went to the doctor. So it was another one of those visits where she woke up. They were going to go to the aquarium in Boston with little Kenny, Molly, and Gracie. And Molly woke up with the headache and the vomiting and was sick all morning and they didn't go. And she went to the doctor. And this time the doctor saw that she'd gained five pounds and so moved away from that and in distress and gave her an antibiotic. So sure, we're trying different things and coming up with different reasons, but still no, no look inside the head. Now Molly has a numb tongue and a tingly face. Again, these things can happen with migraines. So I was in Amsterdam away from, from all of this. And so I didn't have the ability to really respond. Saturday is the day I come home. And as I said, I didn't have a car. And so I couldn't get back up to Concord. By the time we landed and everything, you know, Roy just suggested, look, let's, I'll drive you up in the morning. Let's just go home and sleep and I'll drive you up in the morning. And so we did. I spent Molly's last night alive on the planet, truly alive in Marblehead, just like an hour away. And that's been a hard piece for me as well. I couldn't have known these things. Sunday morning, I wake up, we slept relatively late. I look at my phone and there are like two hours of text messages coming, like 25 text messages. And so my phone's on silent, which was frustrating because that isn't something I would ever do away from my kids. I unsilenced my phone and read all the texts and called Kenny immediately. And Kenny said this was the worst. She ran into the wall. She vomited for hours. So my initial reaction was, why the hell are you just letting her be sick like that? Why haven't you called the doctor? Well, I have called the doctor. She hasn't called me back. Well, call 911. So everyone thought this was an overkill. So I hung up with Kenny. I called my mother. Would you get over to my house, please, mom? I'm calling 911. They need, 911 needs to go. So Kenny called 911. My assumption was that my mother and Kenny had been really, really thorough with the ambulance drivers over all of Molly's history. She was on the bathroom floor. Kenny had her come downstairs to greet them downstairs. I would have left her on the bathroom floor just to show the bathroom was covered in vomit. I mean, it was clear that what happened there wasn't right. And I think the color of the vomit might've been indicative of what was going on as well. I don't know, but these are things that go through my head all the time. So by the time I get back to Concord, it's about 11. Roy drops me off. We bring my stuff in. He leaves and goes back to Marblehead and I get Gracie and go up to Concord Hospital immediately. Before we leave, Gracie shows me everything they bought on their shopping screen, this beautiful pink dress that Molly bought. It was an Audrey Hepburn dress forever. I have pictures of it, you know, I think on my Facebook, I'm sure. Just a cute little pink sundress and it had a low V in the back and just beautiful. And Gracie says, don't tell Molly I showed you. She can't wait to show you. Not knowing that she'd be buried in it 11 days later. So we go to the hospital and we run in and I get there and Kenny's sitting with Molly. And I'm like, hi, Molly, it's mama. And she raises her arm up to me. Hi, mama, whispers to me. And are you okay? I'm okay. And I could, you know, and I'm here. And I, so I never left that. I didn't enter my house again, except to get some things to bring to Dartmouth in the middle of the night for seven days. And I hadn't been there for seven prior. So two weeks, I didn't sleep in my house. So that began our day in the ER. And that day in the ER was, was long and increasingly, increasingly frustrating. I would feel comforted by the hospitalist as he explained that this medicine can make you not wake up. But the longer she didn't wake up, the more anxious I got. I had a couple of nurses that were less than sympathetic, slamming the bed down and insisting that she can walk to the bathroom by herself, but she wasn't even awake. 
you know, she, she was sitting on the toilet trying to pee and the nurse that was watching is a male nurse and Molly is so modest. And I commented that the fact that she let me pull her pants down in front of you means something isn't right. And that was her, the last time we spoke. And I said, can you, can you go pee pee, honey? And she just said, I'm trying. And that no pee was coming out. And then a little while later, she looks at me and she's like, come here often. And that was it. And that was it. That was the last time she spoke to me at all. She got spoken to harshly by one of the nurses and it startled her. And she tried, she sat up and got wobbly. He admonished me not to help her. And I looked at him like he was a bit crazy. So those are some rough memories. When I asked the hospitalist, could we please have a CAT scan? When are we going to do a CAT scan? His response was, we don't do CAT scans on kids, too much radiation. Well, okay, but then can we do an MRI? Well, it's too late in the day now for an MRI. We would have had to do that earlier. And these were my answers to those questions at the time. And so, so began our long stay in the, in the ER. In the evening sometime, my supervisor at work, David Parker, showed up. His son was in the ER that day as well. This really enraged Kenny. They had an altercation in the hallway. Now possible security is like asking if everything is okay. Yes, everything's fine. My sister Johanna showed up and she had a bit too much to drink. Hospital security comes back. And I remember thinking, this is like a bad dream. Like everything that can go wrong in a day is going wrong. Meanwhile, Molly just sleeps and sleeps. She, a nurse comes in or a doctor, I don't even remember which now, and now she's running a bit of a fever. And I'm like, is this a problem? Can we please wake her up? Like, can we look inside her head? And finally, the last time I asked for help, I was spoken to really, really sharply by a nurse. And he just said, she's stable and she's safe. Stop asking. And I didn't ask for anything again. And that was about nine o'clock at night. Finally, around 11, they transported her up to the pediatric unit. And I will say that is where the really looking at Molly began. One of the nurses up there, I could tell by the look in her face that she was not okay with what she was seeing. Sure enough, one of the doctors was immediately summoned and he came back and they're talking under hushed tones and now they're going to have a cat scan. And she hasn't peed all day, although I, I don't know that that information was ever accurately shared back and forth with the people taking care of Molly. So she'd been thrashing around and I've talked about this myoclosis when the nervous system does all this jerking around. If you see me, I'm it's like right before you fall asleep, when you have that myoclonic jerk, it's like your nervous system sort of short circuiting. Well, Molly was had inflammation in her head and it was now starting to kill her, which we didn't, which I didn't know at the time, but that's what I was looking at. We thought it was funny and we videotaped it. Here, Molly, when you wake up for breakfast, you're going to laugh at this, you know, horrifying. Kenny and Gracie left. It was midnight. It was deemed that she would, we would do the CAT scan and she would go to sleep. And no, actually we hadn't even decided about the CAT scan yet. I think Molly and Gracie left before things got real. So in the process of capping her for the CAT scan, she stops moving. And I remember looking at her legs and, and I may have shared this before too. And if you've lost a child or watched your child die, I'm sorry if this is a trigger, but I think it's important for people to hear. So she'd been thrashing all around and I'm holding her hand and I'm looking at her. And all of a sudden her legs are incredibly still. I'm chatting with the tech, the LNA that's holding the catheter. And I'm looking at her legs and I'm like, boy, those look really, really still. And my neck hairs went up. Like something didn't seem right. And I, I look up at her head and her face is yellow and then it's green and her lips just became dark. I walked around to the other side and I'm like, what's going on? What's wrong with her? What's going on? And the LNA was like, you need to leave. You need to leave the room. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. She's like, get out of my way. And so she quickly hit the button that means a code blue. So I stood in the doorway and the room was immediately full of people, immediately full of people. And the nurse jumps on top of Molly and immediately begins CPR. So I step out of the room. They escort me out of the room. I call Gracie and Kenny at this time. I call Kenny on the phone. I'm like, you have to get up here. You have to get up here right now. Something's not right. Something's not right. I'm in a panic in the doorway. 
And so when I'm in the hallway, the nurse that had resuscitated her, you know, they, they paddled her. I got a heart beating. I got a heart beating. Her heart's beating. And they, she was breathing with the bag. So Molly and Gracie arrive at this time. This is about 1.30 in the morning now. And Molly goes off for the CAT scan and Kenny and Gracie are in pediatrics and we head down to the intensive care unit once the CAT scan is over. Gracie is almost passed out. She's a mess. I mean, this is really just horrifying and I, no one knows what's going on. I call my mother, I call my mother, I call my mother. Finally, my mother hears the phone, comes up with a friend of hers uh, named Barbara, same name as me. So we're all at Concord Hospital now. It's probably three in the morning and a neurologist was called to come up and put a drain in Molly's head to drain brain fluid out so that if there was pressure on her brain, it could be alleviated. And that was done. And he was just very serious looking and, and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't quite wrap my head around why he was so serious. So we sit down finally, when this is done, he comes into the waiting room and I'm, we're all here. Can you just tell us here? And he just sort of looks at me and he's like, are you sure this is something you want everyone here to know, to hear the, you know, again, I don't really know why he would want us to know. It's not really dawning on me that Molly's dead. So we go into this other room and my mother quickly comes in. So now Gracie and Barbara Joyce are in the waiting room and my mother and me and Kenny and the neurologist and some ER staff and the doctor from the ER are all in this room. And the doctor looks at me and he said, we found a mask. And I'm like, I knew it. Oh my God, I knew it. I knew this hours ago. Thank God, what do we do now? And he just looks at me and he said, we're too late. And I sit there for a minute. I'm like, excuse me? And he said, we're too late. If Molly were a 60 year old woman, I wouldn't have even come here, but she's a little girl. She's 13, children are resilient. But that was the pressure, the rupture, she had a tumor that ruptured in her head and the, and the pressure of the rupture was too much. We believe that it, it probably was too much for her to wake up from that the brain damage would be too significant. Because she's a child, we're gonna send her to Hanover to, the, to a different hospital, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon and have the tumor removed. So this was the first reaction that when I look back on it now, I can't, I can't even repeat it for you. And I think, I think anyone that's been through this will know what I'm talking about. So I heard, started to hear a noise and I'm like, what the heck is that noise? And I realized it was me. And I was making the scream, this guttural, I was saying the word no, but I can't, I can't even mimic the sound that was coming out of my throat. And I was sitting across from this doctor and Kenny was to my right, or maybe across from me and my mother was to my right. I crawled up onto the table on my hands and knees across the table until my face was one inch from his screaming, the scream, no, like, and I crawled to the end of the table. I crawled onto the floor. I crawled along the wall. I tried to stand up. I fell down. It was horrifying. A nurse finally picked me up and said, we need to give her a sedative or something. And my mother's like, you're not giving her anything. She just had this horrible news that her daughter could be dead. So that was profound. I got collected and calmed down and they said Molly would be taken up in an ambulance immediately and we should go immediately to Dartmouth Hitchcock. We went home. We went home. And I remember coming out of that room, all of the staff from the ER, some of whom had been on with Molly for several hours and others that weren't just stood there. And the, the one doctor whom I'd asked several times to help Molly, the look on his face is horrifying. And, and I don't want ill will on anybody, but he better not be over it yet because we never will be. That's, that's how the mean part of me feels. Like you don't get to be happy because I'll never be happy again. I know that sounds, to those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I know how that sounds, but it's just, it's just a bad way to feel. So we left, we, I came home. I remember calling Roy on the phone, walking up my street while Kenny and Gracie were loading their things into the car and saying, Molly's dead and hit, what? And sharing that information, maybe not, maybe it's just a brain tumor. We spoke for a little while 
And I got in the car and off we went. And that was another piece of this story that, that stands out. We're, we're driving up now, it's early morning. And so it's spring. And so the sun's coming up. And, and of course, the, the sky is beautiful, pinks and purples and all the, the sunrise colors, that deep purple initially. And so I have to, Kenny's in the back and he's sleeping. I mean, Gracie and I are, well, he's lying down. Gracie and I are in the front and I'm talking to Gracie and I'm just explaining to her, look, you need to be ready for three things. Best news that this is fine. Molly will be fine. They take the tumor out and she's the same old Molly. The second thing, they take the tumor out, but she's not the same Molly. Maybe she's blind. Maybe she can't walk. Maybe she's not right and can't learn. Maybe she can't communicate a different Molly. Or she's dead and she'll never come home. We have to be ready for all of those things. Sweet Gracie. Okay, mommy. Okay, I can do it. Okay, I can do it. And so she, you know, collected herself and off we went to the hospitals. When we, when we arrived at the pediatric intensive care unit, we were ushered into a waiting room there and Molly was in a bed and we got to see her and she, you know, her head's all wrapped up. She looks awful. You know, she just looks awful. She's tubed and she's got things in her nose and everything else. And then, and then off she goes, she disappears. The surgeon is come and he's doing this emergency surgery to remove this tumor. So I had posted on Facebook, Molly stopped breathing. I think it's a brain tumor. We're at Hanover. And before I could even really wrap my head around the fact that I was there, they started coming. Erin Clority and her mother, Deb. Meg Nyan and her mother, Sarah. The people just started coming. Robin Grant called. Uh, she had gone to CrossFit early in the morning and Sky Butman, one of my former runners and athletes, said, oh my God, you see about Molly and Sky wasn't okay. And Robin just put a sign on the door, flips is closed, came up to Hanover, stayed with me for, until Thursday a long time. It was amazing. But by noon, Molly was still in surgery. CrossFit coaches showed up. Brad and Ian from White Mountain. John from Ironborn, you know, and, and Benny. People just started coming. I can't, I can't name all the people because over the course of the next, you know, six days, I would say well over 650 people came to see us. It was an, an extraordinarily high number of people. So those first few days, it was visiting Molly. The first two days, it was visiting Molly who would eventually wake up and come home and coming up and leaving cards and all. When she finally came out of surgery Monday afternoon and was settled in the room, it was still just two people at a time in the room. And so two at a time, people would go in to say hi to her. It's an intensive care unit. There are other sick children. Unknown to me that the unit wasn't all that full and they were able to move some of the other patients into rooms further away from Molly's. Her room was right across, right outside. Well, they're all right there by the nurse's station, but hers was the closest one. And so they emptied a room next to Molly's over the course of Tuesday. Again, me not knowing. So Monday and Monday night was, was just people finding out, people coming up, visiting, visiting two at a time, spending a lot of time in the waiting room, spending a lot of time, you know, just pacing around, getting food. The hospital emptied out a room. So now people could be in the room next to Molly. This was on Tuesday, actually. And Dr. Bauer, her wonderful neurosurgeon, said to me that, you know, I'm, I'm enthusiastic. We got that, came right out. The entire tumor came right out, which is heartbreaking to hear now because it could have come right out 12 hours earlier and I wouldn't be giving this podcast right now. And so we sat and he was enthusiastic and hopeful and he admonished us all, look for little signs, a little blink, a little finger wiggle, anything. And I remember falling asleep that night and Robin stayed overnight. And so she slept on this like recliner chair and I slept on a windowsill and it's like a bed. Molly was just so still. I just wanted her to move. I just wanted her to move. She was having her fingernails painted and toenails painted. Like, you know, the things that were going on around her, Taylor Swift was playing. 
that night, two things. Um, her nurse, Sharon, this wonderful red-haired, feisty Southern girl, Sharon, the first day as a travel nurse, and Molly was her first patient. And they, I believe, are were destined to meet, sadly, the way they met. But and then her nurse, her nurse was a, a guy named Charlie. I didn't realize who he was at first, but he was looking at me funny. And and Robin, my friend, said, I think he knows who you are. I was bringing leftover pizza to the nurses' station for them to eat. And it took me a minute, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh my God, Chaz. Chaz. So Chaz, as I call him, was a boyfriend of mine in 1989 and 1990. So, you know, 26 years prior to Molly. So little did I know my boyfriend one day unplugged my daughter. And I I just remember thinking all of these things made sense. Of course, it's Chaz or someone like Chaz. And so, so began our week. Tuesday was another long day of hoping and praying and watching for any sign of movement. None of them came. Every time the neurologist came and looked at the papers and looked at Molly, his face looked less and less happy and less and less okay. He sat down with me and said that he he thought it didn't look good, that if she were going to move or wake up, she would have had movement already, that anything impeding movement would have shown up now. But we're going to take her away for an MRI. And they took her away for the longest time. It was the longest, longest time. During that time, the visiting room was full of people, just full of people. Lots and lots of Concord Dance Academy people, lots of friends of Molly's from Renlet, close friends right now, you know, people that she was really closely connected to current friends. We let Keisha know and Keisha and her mom came up. Derek was a fixture there. Lots of people didn't come. They, you know, they figured once she got better, it was stronger. At this point, we really just thought she'd still wake up. Although I think looking back on it, I think I knew she wouldn't. I was, you know, I let my job know that I was pretty much done, that I didn't think I'd be coming back either way, no matter, no matter what happened. And I kept Roy in the loop, but you know, Amsterdam was a very tricky subject for Kenny. You know, I had a conversation with one of my CrossFit friends and Amsterdam came up and, and I said, oh my God, I was just there. And we talked about different sites. Katie was up, Kenny's daughter, and she marched him out of that room and she wanted him to go home and, and not be there. All of a sudden he disappeared. Where are you? He was really mad at me, which, which I get it. I don't blame him. He had every right to be angry and hurt. I can't tell him how to feel about any of this. But at that moment in time, what I talked about in our situation was ours I and mean, he needed to be with Molly and being advised to leave her was infuriating to me at the time. <laughs> I know, and I think Katie was just trying to protect her father, but at that point, he wasn't the one that needed to protect it. It was Molly and our family unit, Gracie, me, Kenny, Molly. You know, that was a big piece and a big part of the week as well. Molly comes back from the, from the long, long, what do you call it? MRI. And we're visiting, whereas it's, everything's business as usual. And then Shalene, she was our, she was our leader. She was the one that, that was the leader of the team that was taking care of Molly, this incredible team of doctors and nurses and technicians, social workers and ministers and everyone. And, and she said, it's time for a meeting. Bring Gracie. Well, I don't want to bring Gracie. I, I just didn't feel that Gracie should hear things like us. She didn't need to see me lose my shit if I was going to lose my shit. And so we went and sat. So Robin came with me. Robin really never left my side. And, you know, Robin and I haven't spoken. It'll be three years, December 1st. You know, that it is what it is, maybe two years, but at any rate, a long time. And so Robin was there, Katie, Kenny's daughter was there, and then Kenny and I, and in this table of doctors. And Shalene just said it like this, Molly will never wake up. The tumor erupted and her brain suffered a catastrophic injury in Concord before she ever came. Removing the tumor did not fix any of the damage. She has been dead since she came here. So I didn't have that initial guttural response like I did before, but I peed my pants. I just peed my pants. The urine came pouring out. So I ran into the, I ran into the chapel, the chapel there 
and Robin followed me and I screamed and cried, screamed and cried. No, 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 no. And I crawled, I laid down on the floor and I, I'm, the more I screamed and she was so good. Scream, Barbara, just scream, 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 let it out, scream. And now I'm covered in urine and snot and, you know, I haven't showered since I've been there. I haven't showered since Amsterdam and I'm a mess. I'm just a disastrous mess. And so I get up and I collect myself and I go back. And I walk in and I'm like, we're donating all of Molly's organs. And while I had been losing it, the doctors that had come up and the doctor said, we can't donate anything except her cornea because we don't know if her tumor has cancer in it and the organs could be cancer. So we would find out later the tumor was most like, was certainly not cancerous. It was a very benign tumor and she could have donated so many healthy organs to people. And we couldn't even do that. Can you tell I'm crabby today as I deliver this podcast? I'm in my anger stage of grief. So we sat. And so I went and got Gracie and I went into the room. I just got up and left the room. Stay right here. Nobody moved. And I went and got Gracie and I said, Gracie, come with me. Everyone else, please stay. And so I walked Gracie back into the room and I sat down and there was this wonderful Italian doctor and his name begins with a G and I don't remember it. And maybe I don't look it up because I don't want to remember, but he had white hair and a beard and he was heavy and he was sitting next to me. And, and I said, Gracie, we need the doctors here need to explain something about Molly. And so they explained everything. He just explained it. And Gracie nodded. Yes, I get it. Yes, I understand. And everything. And he's all done. And he has made it clear. Molly will not wake up. Molly is, is gone. Her brain, he may not have used those words, which is why I think Gracie asked the question. But the question, you know, he had explained that when a brain dies, when there's an injury in the brain, cells are made of water and the cells overflow and they drown the cells. And pretty soon everything is just water and there's no more actual brain there. And he explained all of that to her. And she said, yes, I understand. And she was sitting between my knees and my lap and I was rubbing her back. And she was sitting in the chair right in front of me and, and I switched back. And um, she said, and he said, do you have any questions? She goes, yes, I just have one. And you can be honest. You can be honest with me. Tell me the truth. I can take it. And he said, okay. And she says, how long until Molly wakes up? So sorry, I'm trying to not look stupid while I cry for those that are watching this. Maybe this is one I shouldn't film, but I don't care. And so, of course, I start sobbing because Molly's not going to wake up. And so he has to say to her. So I turn to him as he begins to say, Gracie, I'm sorry, Molly will never wake up. And these giant tears are rolling down his face. And his whole face, I remember looking at it and thinking it looked like a white bearded ocean. His whole face was rippling with holding in the tears and the crying it was the sweetest, most genuine response from a doctor I think I've ever, ever, ever seen. So he tells her this. And she, her response is almost comical because she goes, no, 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 no. That's my baby. You know, what am I going to tell our friends? You know, we're supposed to do a duo with Miss Hillary. We're, we're having a dance. What am I going to text my friends? <laughs> her big concern was what will she text her friends? And she was a mess. And so we let her cry for a bit and I rubbed her back. And of course, we're all crying now. And all of her friends are out there. They're all wondering what's going on. So she doesn't know what to do. And I said, Gracie, you can do whatever you want. This is your news and your sister. Please don't put it on social media yet until we tell, until we tell other people, please don't post anything. So she runs into the hall and she yells out, Molly will never dance again. And so the social worker comes in and she said, you know, these moms, everyone really wants to know what's going on. Would you like me to gather them and explain? And I said, no, I'll do it. And she was very concerned that I not do something like this, but I just felt like, I'm her mother and these are these little dance friends are our friends. And so this group of girls became known as the Tuesday night crew. It was Kelsey Chase, who's not a dance girl, but was one of Molly and Gracie's best friends. Chloe Key, Meg Nyan, Shelby Miller, Emily Haggett, and 
Megan Reynard. Those six girls and Gracie makes seven. And they were, when I came out, they were sitting crisscross applesauce with their hands crossed like this holding hands. It was like a power circle. And Gracie was giving them advice, drink a lot of water. When you're grieving, you need to drink water. And they're all crying and they don't understand why Molly's not gonna dance again. And she paralyzed, like nobody really knows what's going on. So I, I assemble everybody and I have this thing called Barb mode. I actually think it's a nickname a lot of people use, but I can, I can, I just call it stepping out of myself. And I think when you've had abuse in your life, and trauma, you learn how to step outside of yourself. So whatever bad thing is happening to you, you can step away from it. And so I stepped out and I'm like, all right, all right, girls, gather around, gather around. So the girls are sitting in their circle. They've let go hands and they're looking at me and all the moms are standing behind. I tell them what they are, you know, Molly's been having headaches, you know, all these things going on. So I explain that what happened in the ER was that the tumor ruptured in her head. They came here to take it out. But when the tumor blew up, it damaged her brain in such a way that the brain damage is too much to be alive. You know, and, and so I go through all of it. I feel like I've made it as clear as I can make it. Do you guys have any questions? And so Kelsey Chase raises her hand, smartest, academically, probably the smartest kid in that group. So how long until Molly wakes up again? And again, the, the silence was deafening. The moms all start crying. I start crying. And I'm like, oh, Kelsey, honey, Molly's never going to wake up again. And the reaction to that was horrifying. Megan Nyan got sick. She's sobbing over her mother. It was just outrageous. In an instant, coffee and muffins and milk and water and stuff arrive for this sad, sad group of people. We're in the hallway next to the waiting room, so we aren't right in the NICU. And uh, we just go through it. And so then I noticed David LaBombard's dad, Greg, he had visited earlier and came back. And I'm like, he came back and he goes, I got halfway home and something didn't feel right. I felt like I should come back. Well, he must have given out 900 hugs that night. His shirt was wet with tears. Um, he just knew that these kids knew him and that he was supposed to come and provide comfort. Another really universal sort of message. The next couple of hours were spent with Gracie taking her friends one by one in to say goodbye to Molly. And I said, you know, just be quiet. It's nighttime. The other patients are trying to sleep. So I went in to check that they weren't being disruptive and the nurses behind the nurses station were in tears. I know I think I've told the story before. And they were just sobbing. They just said, your daughter is amazing. She's so beautiful. She's telling them it's okay to touch her. She can hear you. Tell her what you want her to know. So those six girls all got a chance. Well, we gave everyone a chance to have their private goodbye who wanted one. They all had their goodbye that night. It was an unbelievably intense night. I think when, in hindsight, when I look back, I wish, I wish upon wish upon wish that Keisha had been there because it was one of those intense moments. And Derek, even though he's not a girl. And when I think of like those close, close people in our life at that time, I think of that level of sadness and that would have been helpful. So I get on the phone. By the time everyone leaves, it's midnight. It's so late. Kenny and Gracie go back to David's house, which is like a Ronald McDonald type house at Dartmouth where you can stay. I was sleeping in with Molly. Robin was in with us as well. And so we just, we just lie there, you know, and, and Robin, typical Robin, she's the best that she could. You know, we would always take pictures of guys with man buns, but we'd get behind him and take funny pictures. Tried to get me to keep doing my burpees. I was doing hundred burpees a day. I mean, I didn't do a burpee for about two years. I, anytime I tried to do a burpee, I'd start to cry. So Wednesday morning comes and I'm just staring at Molly looking at her all night long. I didn't sleep, not one wink, not one wink. I didn't sleep. I just stared at her all night. So Wednesday comes, and I immediately call Krista McAuliffe School, around that middle school in Concord High School to let them know that she will in fact not wake up and to please share with the entire staff and please, please, please let students and their families know they're welcome to come say goodbye. This was hugely important to me because when I was 10, my best friend Maura died and it, I didn't even know she was sick enough to die. I read her obituary in the paper. We went to the funeral. It was this very, very traditional Catholic funeral. All I saw was a little white casket wheeled by. 
I wasn't allowed to go see her grave at the cemetery. Like it was just invisible. It was like she never existed. And it was, it was a very, very, very upsetting and traumatic experience for me. I was so angry at my mother for not telling me and, and trusting that I could handle that knowledge. And, you know, that was 1973. It was different. But I wanted anyone that wanted to come say goodbye to Molly to please come, please come. And so it began. The room next door was standing room only all day Wednesday. The nurses, Bethany Judge came up and they washed it. She helped them give Molly a spot treatment. So they washed all the blood out of her hair and they put it up in a pretty bun with a pink bow. And they gave her a bath and brushed her teeth. They just did all of this stuff so that she would be okay. And they made her pretty. She needed a t-shirt and Jenna Natural was there and it was May 4th now. And she was wearing a Star Wars shirt, May the 4th be with you. And so the nurse said, I'll have to cut it. You know, I can't. And Jenna said, that's okay. And I still have that shirt. It smells, it's a mixture of Jenna, Jenna's BO and Molly's BO <laughs> in a t-shirt, in a plastic bag, in a drawer, which I will keep forever. So Molly's last three days, four days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of being physically alive, her body being kept alive by machines. She had a Star Wars shirt on and her gray sweatpants. So there was Molly, you know, looking pretty for her visitors. And they came and they came and they came. They came all day Wednesday. They came all day Thursday. And I remember Thursday night, Jolene again, calling a meeting and insisting that we unplug Molly on Friday. And I, I understand, you know, we could keep her on life support forever. I didn't want to unplug her at all. Two days wasn't nearly enough. I hadn't wrapped my head around it yet, but I felt compelled to agree. Okay. And so we went to tell Gracie that Friday would be unplugged day, and she went nuts. I mean, nuts, livid. No, it was the first time I've ever in my life seen that expression of anger cross her face. She was livid. So we went round and round about not unplugging her on Friday. And finally, you know, I just said, you know what? We're, we're doing it on Saturday, Shalene. She's a, Grace is a part of our family. She's going to miss Molly the most. We'll unplug her on Saturday. So Thursday night was intense and tough. And we asked a lot of people, look, you know, if you have a last final goodbye to say, please say it now. Because we weren't sure that the hospital might make us unplug her. So Derek Taylor had his alone time with Molly. And I, I didn't want to listen because I didn't want to be rude. But I sat outside the curtain and I could hear bits and pieces. And oh my God, you know, Derek and Derek and Keisha, their last goodbyes were, were some of the saddest things I've ever seen. Just this heartfelt apologies, wishes, promises that they made to her. Keisha had it written out. It was, it was the most beautiful, beautiful, heart-wrenching horrifying thing. And I, and I remember sitting there like, I can't believe I'm listening to this. Later that night, Roy came up from Marblehead. Everything was so, Roy and I had so much anger in our relationship at that time. It was just so, so, so unhealthy and so, so bad. Everything was bad. My job at the school was bad. My relationship with my supervisor and some of the staff at the school was unhealthy. And Kenny and I were separated and angry. And it was just this, everything was just so hard, but you know, Roy was a huge piece of my life at that time. And I had spent the last seven days of Molly's life with him on a vacation. And so he had a, a wealth of emotions and feelings to share about this. So he came up and he got a hotel nearby. And when everyone had left, it was maybe, you know, 11 at night, Gracie and Kenny had gone to bed. Everyone had left and Roy came to the hospital. And I remember walking down to the main entrance because it's locked at that time to let him in. And I just collapsed and started sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And he just stood there sort of holding me. Roy, it doesn't emote much in that way. And so we walked through the lobby and upstairs to the intensive care unit and into Molly's room. One of the only times that I've ever seen Roy really cry and he sobbed. His whole face reminded me of the doctor, his chin quivering. And he just stood and, and apologized. I'm sorry I took your mom away, Molly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I ever made you angry or scared. I'm sorry that she wasn't here. 
I'm sorry I didn't get to know you better. You know, take all the ugliness aside. Those of you who are listening and have an opinion one way or the other about my marriage to Kenny and all my decisions at that moment in time, it was this really, really tender, tender expression of, of guilt and forgiveness and remorse and just trying to promise Molly that he would be there for me and all of that. It was really, really intense. I remember, so we finished the goodbye and we visit for a while and sit. And then Roy left and went back to his hotel. And I remember coming back up to the room and the nurse saying, I have no idea what just happened in there. But that was one of the most sincere goodbyes I've ever heard. I said, well, I'm in the middle of a pretty ugly marriage right now and things aren't good. And that was his goodbye. And I, I will forever be grateful and glad that he came up and did that because it was a piece, it's a piece of her story. Whether anyone likes it or not, it's a huge piece of Molly and who she was at the time that she died. So then Friday came and this was supposed to be unplugged day. And you know what? It was one of the best days of visitors. It was the day that Xander came. It was the day that Skylar came. Xander was a boy that Molly was really good to in class. And she would pick him for projects because he did his homework and wouldn't make her do all the work. And, you know, he took that, you know, he really, really loved Molly. You know, when you're 12 and you, you know, you have this girl that he perceived was super popular and beautiful and everyone loves her and she's choosing you, you know, that's big at that age. Skylar came, Skylar and Molly had parted ways and Skylar did not do well with hearing that Molly had this brain tumor. And even though it was Friday and the news had been given that she wouldn't wake up, Skylar didn't know. She hadn't processed all that. So when they came up with a super expensive teddy bear gift that, you know, had Molly's name on the jacket, you know, one of those Vermont teddy bears and Skylar just wanted her to wake up and see it. And I just looked at Aaron and I said, you know, Molly's not going to wake up. Aaron goes white. She goes, I can't tell her that. So I had to kneel down and tell Skylar in this crowded room. And that was, that was another memory I'll never forget. I put my hands out in front of her face. Cause I really, no, I kneel down and I tell her all of this about Molly. She turns white. Then she turns gray. Then she turns green. I'm like, get up. She needs to sit. She sits in a chair. Her mother comes over somebody get a bucket. And she throws up. That was her re response to hearing about Molly dying. That whole day, Cynthia came. She had been uh, my bus driver and had taken Molly to preschool that day that she gets to try the little try out everything at preschool. And so it was just one of those, one of those special days. John, one of the custodians at, at Crystal McAuliffe came that day and sobbed about what a kind little girl Molly was. It's why he put mints in her locker. I thought he gave mints to everybody. And he goes, no, I just gave Molly a mint every time I saw her do something nice for somebody. And she had like a hundred mints in her locker at the last day of school. You know, those are things I'll never forget. You know, it was just one of those days that had we unplugged her on Friday, such a strong group of people would have missed out our last visitor was a family and they stood around Molly's bed and prayed and prayed for her and, you know, and all of that. It was beautiful. And, and that little girl's dad's a doctor. And he saw me a couple of years later and said, what a turning point that was, what a big piece of his daughter's growth and development, how we handled Molly's death was and inviting everyone to come and stay. I could spend hours telling all the stories of Molly's visitors and, you know, someday maybe I'll do a podcast full of stories. I don't know. But Friday night, Roy had gone back to Marblehead and we watched on the news that Molly, Molly was on the news. The whole thing was on the news. Cindy was, there was some girls tap dancing and it was just this thing about Molly and how she wouldn't wake up. And I was interviewed and that sort of thing. And then that was it. I climbed into bed with Molly and that was it. Our last night sleeping together. I started sleeping with her. And the other thing that stood out for me in that week is that they have to do, you know, you don't just plug someone in and breathe for them nothing is working in the body and the kidneys talk to the heart. The kidneys are like the chemistry center of the body and anything that's secreted by the kidney, which processes all the fluid in your body and, and sends urine to the, to the bladder goes back, you know, all of those things affect heart rate and affect blood pressure, everything. And so 
they were constantly adjusting the 9,000 bags of whatever it was that were going into Molly. And these things, and when things were stressful in the room, Molly's body would respond to that stress sometimes. They finally asked us Friday night, look, you need to get these people out of here so that you can have your last night and calm things down. And so we did. What I would notice is each night I slept with Molly, they had to adjust her less in the night. And the last night, the nurse Gina never had to adjust any of her stuff once. And she goes, you know, if I didn't know better medically, I would say that you being in the bed with her settles her down. Well, I know religion and science, God and science are one and the same. And that Molly did feel me, that she got right inside of her body when I was there. And she knew it was me. One time I woke up and she was looking at me. Her eyes were sort of half open. They do move her in, in her sleep and she was facing me. And it was just like, startled me a little bit that waking up. Saturday morning comes and we had one final visitor, her second grade teacher, Brenda Charpentier. She thought she had missed it. And I said, no, no, please come, please, please, please. And so she came and she had her final goodbye. You know, Molly had her actual death, which was the early hours of May 2nd. She was declared dead by the state of New Hampshire in the middle of the day on May 6th, which was a Thursday. When you remove a child from life support, you have to prove that she definitely for sure won't wake up. So they had to do all these horrible things to her. They shoved the water in her ear and a tip up her nose and they rubbed her eyeball and they pinched her real hard. And finally they took off the ventilator and you watch the CO2 levels rise, rise, rise. And a person that could do it would gasp for air at that time, but she couldn't do it because she was not alive. And so she didn't gasp for air. So they put her back in the vent. We signed a death certificate. So her death certificate says May 6th. And then May 7th was the removal from life support. We had made footprints and handprints with paint at the time, I didn't want to do these things, but I realized now that they were so important. They were so important to do. We got our fingerprints, which are still on a piece of paper in an envelope in a folder in a file cabinet drawer. We want to make jewelry with them. I just never have. It's funny. It's just funny how things get done or don't get done. And then Kenny got out of dialysis and came to the hospital with Gracie and Jonathan, my brother, came in, Lon Lon, his wife, and Katie. Erin came in on her day off and she was a blessing to Gracie, but she spent a lot of time with Gracie, but she really, she helped Chaz and, and they unplugged Molly. My biggest memory from that is that it took forever. It does, you don't just pull a plug. One by one, the needles come out, the ventilator comes off the face, and then you just wait. So here's this perfectly still, beautiful Molly. And the whole time this is happening, they're talking to her as if she can feel it. Chaz apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry, Molly, I was a little rough on that, but I'm, I hope it didn't hurt. You know, like he doesn't have to do it. He could just quickly get it done and he didn't. He, you know, I thought he was doing it for my benefit. No, he meant it. You could just see he was connected to her and her sweet little body that he had to be the one to take everything out of. So in the meantime, all of this is happening and Gracie's looking at her phone and looking away and, and Lon Lon's taking tons of pictures. I wish now in some respects that we had filmed it. I know that sounds macabre, but you know, it's such a vivid piece of my life that I'd ever watch it, but to know that I could, it was alive-ish there. So when everything was out and there was beautiful Molly, we took pictures. And then I climbed into bed with her and I kissed her and I smelled her and I sang to her. And during this time, whenever, when she was completely unplugged, the heart still beats. And it took about 12 to 15 minutes for it to stop. It stopped right at noon. And you could feel it. I could feel it under my hands. I'm like, Kenny, come here, come here. You have to feel this. And so he would feel it. And then I would feel it. And then he would feel it. And then, and then he let me keep my hand there. And I laid with her. And then and the doctor, would, doctor, his name was Derek. He'd look in. Okay, it's still beating. Okay, it's slowing down, but we just had another one. And then finally it was done and he put his head and he said, okay, it's done. We've turned off the machine. And the machine was in the hall, so we wouldn't be bothered by it. I laid there, I would say about three hours. We didn't leave that hospital room until well after three. And I just laid there and, and Kenny and Katie and Gracie and Jonathan and Lomlod emptied the room and filled up two cars. You know, We had Katie's car and my car 
we filled up the cars with everything in that room, the food and the gifts and the posters and the presents and the flowers and the balloons, all of it went into the, into those cars. And I just laid there with her. And finally I had to get out. I didn't want to get out. I just didn't want to get out. I just didn't. And so we all had our goodbyes, you know, we kissed her and then it dawned on me, well, wait a minute, what's going to happen to her now? They said, well, they'll take her to the morgue. And I'm like, who's going to take her to the morgue? At that time, Chaz said, well, you know, but somebody from the morgue. And I said, no, I'm taking her. No one's taking my little 13-year-old dead naked body girl. No, no, no. Like, it makes no sense, except that I grew that body in my belly. I didn't want anyone looking at it, taking it for me. And so Jess said, he gave me his phone number. And he goes, I'll make sure that she's safe. And I'll check on her when I leave. And so he took her down and got permission to, to accompany the people down and take her. And he checked on her when his thing was over. And by then, the funeral home had gotten there. And Glenn from, from the funeral home was phenomenal. He took really good care of Molly and called me several times. And then we drove home. And so it's the second time I've driven home from Dartmouth without the baby I went there with. And so I thought about that actually quite a bit. Gordy's day had been sunny and hot summer. This was a rainy, cloudy, cold May 7th, the day before Mother's Day, 2016. And so that was that. We drove home. We drove home. We unloaded all of the stuff from Molly's room into the room off the living room where most of it stayed for two years or a year. We didn't, we cleaned nothing. And so began life without Molly. So I'm going to stop here because the next piece, the next corner turn really at home is a different, a different story. And I've probably talked way too long. So I have to say the chronology of these events is best I can remember. I actually think perhaps Roy's visit had been on Friday night and not Thursday night because I know he watched the news and he wouldn't have been able to see WMUR from Marblehead. So I may have, you know, some of the chronology might be wrong. Robin ended up leaving and I believe that she left Thursday morning early. I woke up, I woke up Thursday morning and she'd gone Friday morning and she'd gone home Thursday. So if we went to bed together Thursday night, that wasn't the night that I had the visit. I know that the room being emptied maybe wasn't emptied the first day we were there. I think it was after we knew Molly wouldn't wake up. These are the details that go away. But what I've recalled in the best way possible is what that week was like. We hear a lot of complaints about the medical profession right now with COVID. And I will tell you right now that if that week that week of those nurses and doctors' lives changed them. I keep in touch with a lot of them. And Sharon remembers Molly forever. That was a life-changing week for her. She knew Molly for six days. Never once got to hear her voice. So I can't imagine what it is like for medical professionals that go through these things and try so hard to save these people or to be saddled with the burden of sharing with a family that you're not taking a child home. What made me happy during that week? I will tell you, I laughed a lot. What made me happy was seeing Marty Shea, one of my college teammates, seeing Bridget Ferns one of, and Karen De Palma, kids I went to high school with, you know, like people came to see me that I had not seen in a long, long time. And that was incredibly, incredibly profound and helpful for me because it mattered. And we could talk and laugh and tell stories that made us giggle. Those are things that made me happy. Coming home and seeing a yard full of flowers because Robin had thought to tell people, if you don't know what to do, bring some flowers over. I have a garden to this day with beautiful peonies and roses and hydrangea that were brought to me the week of Molly's death week, number one. So I'll end on this note. As I deliver this podcast, Kenny and Gracie are outside. Gracie tested positive for COVID 10 days ago, and today was her first negative test. So she's heavily masked still, but she and Kenny are out, out on this beautiful sunny day walking Jack-Jack. And I'm telling the story of Molly's last week of having blood through her body and her skin be warm and rosy. So that was it. That was a week that I pray with all I have in me that none of you listening ever has to go through. And I pray that if any of you do, that you will be, feel free to reach out. All I can do is tell you what I know and be a shoulder if you need one. 
So as usual, think of what you can do to make someone happy today. Don't make assumptions about people when they're in bad moods. They might be going through something really, really crappy. Just be nice and gentle. And as I always say, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.